Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for another morning and the opportunity to get into your word. We know, God, that we are dependent upon you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And what Troy said earlier is absolutely the truth. The most important thing about this service or this church or today would be the preaching of the Word. So, Father, we ask that today's Word from Romans chapter 3 would fall afresh on our hearts and sound as real and satisfying and deep and good as it ever has. Oh, Father, only You can make that happen. So we ask in the name of Jesus, to give us hearts to believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're in between series now with us having finished the book of Exodus just a little bit ago. And so, I want to preach today on what many have called the central passage in the entire Bible. Most of us are overwhelmed with the Bible being so long, so big, so full. I get asked on a regular basis, I want to start reading the Bible, but where can I start? How do I know where to start? What would you recommend? What should I read? And there are good, good places to start. We often point people to John. But many have called this passage, the middle of Romans 3, verses 21 to 26 or 21 to 28, many have called this the central passage of the entire Bible. The pinnacle, if you will of explaining everything to us. And so today we're at Romans 3. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to use that pew Bible there in front of you. That's the black Bible in front of you. It would be page 1038. If you're going to use that, we'd like for you to follow along. You know, the, the number one thought that I think about all the time in life, the most consistent thought in my mind is, is, is parenting. When you have a lot of children, that just kind of happens. I'm often worried, or, or, or at least mindful, maybe not worried, but at least mindful of, do Val and I know what we're doing? Is God going to use us in parenting? And uh, is it okay for us to have this many children? For those of y'all who don't know, she's pregnant right now with our fifth. We're excited about that. And so my mind then goes to looking back to, to my parents. And as you've heard me say many times before, my mom is, is out of this world. It's taught me well, taught me well, so many things. And so, as people get to know me, they often find out that I think I have great parents that taught me well. But one of the things about my childhood growing up is that we were, we were not very Christian. Now, my mom's going to listen to this sermon like she does, and she's going to say, that's not true, son, we were Christian." But y'all know what I mean. We didn't read the Bible at home. Church wasn't our biggest priority. Sports were. And my parents did a great job of allowing me. Like most kids, I played year-round baseball. Played baseball three seasons a year and did that and loved it. And my parents let me. And they let me go to everything. And they paid those fees to get you to play. And they made me go to every practice and and all of that good stuff. And that, that carried on throughout 
throughout the teenage years, and they allowed me to do it. But as you all know, that if you're going to be that into it, it's not impossible to be committed to church life, but it just took a back seat. And so I was growing up knowing, you know, maybe a little bit about church and about God, but it wasn't at all the, the center of my life, which is the only place that Jesus can be. I hope you know that. Jesus cannot be a side burner. Jesus cannot be maybe important. Jesus is either all or nothing. There is no in-between with Him. And so I was dealing with that. And as I'm often asked, people will say things like, so your dad or grandpa in the ministry? And, and that's not the case at all. My dad often asks, how'd you turn out like that boy? He asks me questions like that all the time. And I'll tell you what happened. We were big into sports. I was about 12, 12 years old. And we decided to visit a new church. Which is kind of neat. I'm not really sure why we did. We had been going to Presbyterian church while I was a little kid. And then we went to Methodist church for a while. And then all of a sudden we visited Baptist church. It was, it was all new to me. We visited there. And like they used to do back in the, in the early 90s, if you visit a church, they're sending somebody to your house within 48 hours to do some good follow-up. And they came. And they sat down in the living room with us. And my parents made me sit down on the couch too. And within just a few minutes of this short visit, because you can't stay too long on an in-home visit, they started talking about Jesus being God and Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus' blood being the only thing that would wash away my sins. And I was only 12. When you're 12, you, you know a lot and you also don't know a lot. And I remember sitting there going, what in the world? This is huge news. I wasn't sure if I believed it, but, but I was saying, this is unbelievable. They're talking about church life, religious stuff, as if this is the most important thing in the world. And they're saying things like, dead in my sins, and heaven or hell, and eternal life, and no eternal life, to me. And I knew then that this was heavy. And then they said to my dad, and to my mom, and to me, and my sister would have been like eight, so I'm not sure where she was, but they said, do you want to believe that? And I remember thinking, this, I can't decide that right now. I just heard about this. I'm overwhelmed. So I said, no, I'm not ready. And they left. But folks, it was a few months later, probably just a few weeks later, that we went back to that church. And the preacher said the same thing from the pulpit. And God did something to me. I had not cared much about Jesus. Like normal, I loved sports, and I'm glad I did, I still do. But God did something to me that day. He saved my soul. And He caused me to believe. He caused me to turn from my sins and to say, God, would you forgive me? And He did that. And I'm 34 now, I'll be 35 here in just a couple weeks. That's old. Nobody calls, nobody calls 35-year-olds young anymore. I'm starting to face it. I tried to grow my beard out to be handsome for Val, and she points out that there's gray hair in it. So that was 22 years ago. And what he did then hasn't stopped in me. Because he did it. What he did, I promise you, 
was not the upbringing of my parents. What he did was something he did according to the truth of the Word of God and what Jesus did on the cross. When Paul writes the full explanation of what it means to be saved, he does it in the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, at chapter 3, Here's the climax of that. That's what we're going to look at today. And if you're here today, and church life is becoming more and more important to you, Jesus is something that you're more and more interested in. I ask you now, and I'll ask you again here in about 20 minutes. Would you today make a commitment to become a follower of Jesus? Would you today make a commitment to be forgiven of your sins? Would you today decide to be saved from your sins? And not go to hell, and go to heaven, and become a Christian? Romans 3 will explain exactly how. Read with me, if you will, at Romans 3, starting at verse 21. And we'll read all the way through verse 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to walk through this passage now. D.A. Carson, writing in his book Scandalous, which the book is about the redeeming work of Christ on the cross, Focusing mostly on this passage, writes, Nothing is more central to the Bible than Jesus' death and resurrection. The entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Look with me at verse 21. But now, and the Bible says but now a lot, Paul says, but now here. And the reason why is because he has built this huge case in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and the beginning of Romans chapter 3. There is no way for anybody here or anybody else in the world to come away from the message of God thinking high of themselves and not recognizing their need for God. In Romans 1, he starts to talk about how we need God to do something. He will admit that there are some people that try harder than other people. The Bible says that. He will admit that compared to each other, there are some really fine people. He will admit that compared to each other, there are some really lousy people. But he will also admit that for anybody, the most outstanding community citizens that there are, before God, have sinned against God and separated themselves from God. The but now is saying we need God to do something. Look with me, if you will, turn back a page to Romans 1. Verse 21, if you don't know these verses, I ask you to to consider them as totally true from God. 
For although they knew God... Okay, these are not atheists. These are people that know about God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice here, folks, that there are many people on earth that know about God, would even say they think God is true, but there is not an honoring and a thankfulness in them that is directed toward God. This is a problem. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. You know what is foolish about this? is that they are thinking that they don't need God. They are thinking that they know enough or that they do enough that God doesn't need to be the very most important thing to them. <coughs> Claiming to be wise, they became foolish. Verse 23. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. <coughs> Folks, they did not have the perspective on God. Turn over now to chapter 2, verse 12. <coughs> He's still explaining this sinfulness. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Listen, he's saying, whether you have been trying to be devoted to God's law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, or whether you don't know anything about God's law, the Ten Commandments, or the Old Testament, doesn't matter. You're still dying in your sins. Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work, listen to this, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, listen, while their conscience also bears witness. If you've never heard that before in Romans 2, I encourage you to highlight, underline that. God is teaching us that the conscience of a man bears witness to the fact that there is a God they are accountable to. No matter where you are, no matter what you're involved with, no matter what sins you're dealing with, okay? Those that are outside seen by others, those that are inside that nobody knows about. Those that other people give approval to, which are still sins, or those that other people are telling you outright are filthy and wrong. Regardless of what the sins are, the Bible says that your conscience is bearing witness to you that God is real and you are accountable to Him. That is why every person in this room knows what it feels like to have a dirty conscience at some time. Every one of us know what a guilty conscience is like. And Paul is writing this big, elaborate case to get you to know you need God. Now look at chapter 3. Verse 9. Okay, what then? Are we Jews? Are we any better off? No, not all. For we have already charged that all, that's everybody, Jews or Greeks, that's every human being, are under sin. As it is written. Thank you. Everybody is under sin as it is written. Listen to this. This is speaking about every human being. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Does everybody see that? Look down to verse 18. There is no fear of God 
before their eyes. This is humanity. So verse 21 says, but now. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is new. This is a new idea. This is incredible. Being right with God, righteousness is manifested. It's here. It's demonstrated. It's available. It's shown. You can have it. You can have righteousness before God. And what is fascinating about this is he's just spent the last two and a half chapters in great detail saying, you don't have it. Nobody has it. You can't get it. You can't earn it. You can't be raised that way. Nobody has it. But it's here. It's demonstrated. It's shown. And so you and I are thinking, okay, I need God. I need His righteousness. He's just told me I can't get it on my own. So our question is, where can it come from? Then he says... Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, amen. What he's saying here is that the whole Old Testament all along has been pointing us to a Savior, not to a system. The message of the Old Testament is not do this and you'll be right with God. Although many people who stayed real shallow and never really put their mind to it might tell you that. That's wrong. The Old Testament is not telling you if you do this or you follow these rules or you be a good guy or a good Christian or whatever that you'll be right with God. It does not teach that. Here he is reminding us that it, it gave witness to it. It did point to Christ. It did have shadows of Christ. But we don't have the full message until we get deep into the New Testament. But it's available, and you and I are like, okay, well, where is it? And if you've believed the first two and a half chapters, you're thinking, well, oh no, it's not in me. I can't come up with it. I can't do it. I can't earn it. I can't work for it. I can't be good enough. I can't be raised that way. None of that. No, it's not. So you and I ought to be thinking, okay, it's manifested. It's here. It's available, but it's not anywhere in me. Well, then tell me where, where? And he does. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, anybody in the world can be 100% righteous if they believe in Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you, I don't know how experienced you are with church life. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible before. But this entire book, I promise you, is wanting you to know that the righteousness of God can be completely yours if you will believe in Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's done. Now, R.C. Sproul writes that for to believe in Paul's mind when he says believe here, involves knowledge of the Gospel's contents, so who Jesus is and what He's done, mental assent to its testimony about Christ, who He is and what He's done, and obedient trust and reliance on Him as Savior and Lord. This is what Paul means when he says believe. You have to know what it is. You have to say, okay, I agree with it. 
And that there must be a full, all-out, complete trust, dependence, reliance on who this Jesus is. Who He is and what He's done. He is my Savior that has washed away my sins. He is my Lord that is the King over my life. There is no such thing as Jesus is just Savior and not Lord. And there is no such thing as Jesus is Lord and not Savior. He's not somebody we follow but didn't die for our sins. He's not somebody that died for our sins that we don't follow. He must be both. And that's what he's getting at here in order for you to get the free righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. When I was a kid, I didn't know all that. I had never read Romans 3. But the Bible, thankfully doesn't say, listen to me, that you have to know a certain amount of the Bible in order to become someone who believes. The Bible doesn't say that. Matter of fact, the Bible doesn't say, doesn't tell us this way or that way how much we need to know. The Bible says we have to believe. And when I was a kid and they told me that on the couch in the house that day, and a few weeks later I heard it again at church, God did that to me. God caused me to believe. God saved me. And ever since then, in my salvation, I've been understanding it more and more and more. Look what he says next. For there is no distinction. This is important for us, church. Because the world makes distinctions all the time. We have distinction in everything. We have age distinctions, and we have skill set distinctions, and we have race distinctions, and we have religious distinctions, and we have distinctions after distinctions after distinctions all throughout the world. You know this. But the one thing in the world that doesn't have distinction, even though, sadly, unfortunately, churches would reveal to you otherwise is God. With God, there is no distinction. Does everybody see that in the Bible right there? There is no distinction. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter where you were born, where you live, what you do. It doesn't matter. There is no distinction. There is nothing that disqualifies you from salvation through Jesus as you approach salvation in Jesus. Nothing. And I might would argue that every distinction you might could come up with just further qualifies you. You might have been the worst dude in Kentucky last night. You might have done things last night that you hope nobody ever knows. You might have done things five years ago that you're still hiding and denying and you don't want anybody to know and it's tearing you up. And when I mentioned guilty conscience earlier, you thought, wow. That's me. I'm telling you that the Bible says there's no distinction before who can be qualified to get saved. Bring it all. He'll wash it all away. Then, he says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You probably know this verse, Romans 3.23. It's just a blanket verse that says there is no distinction. Everybody has sinned. Now, for those of you that think really highly of yourselves, you don't like it. Because it just puts you in the same category as the people that are downtown in jail for robbing banks and for raping people and doing awful, awful things. It just puts you in the same category. And for those of you that are really lowly and realize that you walked in here today limping and I'm the worst person in the world, there's no way God's going to accept me, hopefully that'll lift your head a little bit. Because God just puts you in the same category as all of us. This is just one of the many reasons why churches should be the least judgmental, 
Why churches should be the most accepting. Why churches should be the most loving and most serving. This is one reason why churches should be dominating forces of support and help and uplifting in communities. There's no distinction. And Fairdale's full of people who are drug addicts. And we should not be thinking that we are any better than any of them. None. There's no distinction between them and us. On the surface, yes. But God doesn't look at the surface. You start at the beginning of the Bible and God goes on and on and saying, I don't look at the surface. Some of y'all are really pretty. Some of y'all are really ugly. Ugly, I see the same thing. Some of y'all are so successful and got an education, your bank account is overflowing. Some of y'all are dead broke. And as soon as you get the first dollar, you don't even spend it on the bills and the debt that you should be spending it on. You go and waste it on more food or more clothes. God looks at it and sees no difference. He sees hearts. He tells us over and over again. God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the heart. And the reason why there's no distinction is because before God, none of us have even become close to approaching Him. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what I love is that when I really think about it, I know that to be so true. I don't really know how much you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I know many of y'all to be some really nice folks. But if I stop thinking about y'all and I just look straight right here, here's what I know. I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think that if you would take a moment to think about yourself, you would say the same thing. Well, I'm not sure about everybody else, but I sure need Him. I need Him. And that's what he's saying. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But look what he says next in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Grace is God giving you something that you don't deserve. That's what a gift is. If I was to surprise one of y'all with a Christmas present this year, you'd be surprised. And then you say, wow, well, you didn't have to. I say, I know, that's what makes it a gift. If I had to, it wasn't a gift. And the Bible uses this very language. And this isn't the only place that the Bible uses this language. You have the gift in Ephesians chapter 2 after it says that you're dead in your sins. Faith is a gift by His grace. And I'm telling y'all, when I was 12 years old and not raised to believe in Jesus, a gift showed up in my heart and my life that was Jesus and His righteousness. And I wasn't expecting it. But He gave me a gift. He saved me. That happens. Carson writes in Scandalous, Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the love of God? Go to the cross. Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the justice of God? Go to the cross. It is where wrath and mercy meet. Holiness and peace kiss each other. The climax of redemptive history is in the cross. And that's what he's saying right here in verse 24 when he says, you are justified by His grace as a gift. Well, how so? Where does that gift come about? How do I get that gift? Look what he says. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he pulls out a big word here that is redemption. And while you know a lot of people who can talk a Christian game, you know a lot of people who can talk about church life or talk about this and talk about them trying to be involved and and wanting to raise their children the right way, and there's a lot of us that are really good at talking that game, I don't hear a lot of people who say, I've been redeemed. I don't hear a lot of people who throw out, we need redemption. He redeemed my soul. He redeemed my heart. He redeemed my loss. Y'all know what redemption is though, don't you? The kids like to go Chuck E. Cheese. They love that place. 
You go to Chuck E. Cheese, you spend all this money to buy the tokens, you get like one ticket, 20,000 points on ski ball, one ticket. So we spend all this money to play all the, all the games, and we end up with like just 100 tickets. And you go up there, and they're saying, oh, I want, I want that awesome thing, and it's got like 14,000 tickets on it, we're sitting here with 100. Well, Daddy, how many we have? We've got about 100. Well, what can I get? And they've got a whole wall of amazing, amazing toys. And they got a little <laughs> window thing here that has a Tootsie Roll. <laughs> or an er- eraser. What about that? Well, we, we'd have to really save up for those. I mean, it's awful what they want us to redeem those tickets for at Chuck E. Cheese. But the way the system works is you bring your tickets. You turn in your tickets. We'll give you back this gift. Y'all, the Bible uses that language for us getting right with God. It happens through a redemption. It happens through you bringing something to to God's counter and saying, can can I trade this in? And God's saying, yeah, if you you got this much, then, then you can have this much. And so, what is it that we got to bring to God for the redemption? We got to bring it all. We got to bring all of those sins. And see, that's the neat thing about it. You don't have to bring anything good, you don't have to have enough of anything. You just have to bring everything. It, it kind of like be kind of like bringing negative tickets. God, I'm gonna bring all of this. What about what about those lies? Yeah, I'll bring that too. Well, what about all that lust? I'll, I'll bring that too. What about all my anger? Bring that too. You have to bring everything to the counter of God and say, God, what can I get with this? And see, the reality is, is that you and I would be so embarrassed. We are embarrassed. We'd be so shameful. We are shameful. We would be so down and out that it wouldn't be like, here's my tickets. It'd be more like on our face with tears in our eyes, with conviction in our heart. It'd be like, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can't even lift up. The, the, the sinner's beating his chest saying, God, God, we take this. You don't, I don't deserve you to take anything, will you? And God says that in redemption, He hands back to us the righteousness of God that is in Christ Jesus. The life of God produced a holy righteousness with complete obedience where Jesus never messed up. And God is saying that we can redeem what we have for what Jesus has. And that, folks, is the way that you get justified. Does everybody see the word justified in verse 24? The word justified in verse 24 says that we are right with God, how? As grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look what he says next. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. What do you mean received? Again, yes, received. It means you have to take that in redemption. So you have to go to God's counter and say, God, here's what I've got. Can that get me anything? And if it's no distinction, if it's falling short of the glory of God, and if it's a whole life past of sins, then that'll get you something. But listen to me. If you come to the counter of God with boasting, here's what I've done, here's how good I am, Here's how much I'm trying. You don't have enough tickets. You can't redeem that. You won't be redeemed. But if you come saying, this is all I got. 
And you understand that God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood? Here's what that means. Propitiation is a big word. And some people have tried to translate it. If you've got a Bible here, it might say expiation. Expiation means just to wipe away sins. We cannot reduce Jesus' death to just wiping away sins. That never dealt with the hard stuff. There's some hard stuff that happened in the, in the redeeming of God's people. Expiation means wiped away the sins. And there's some translations that use that word. But, but this translation right here says propitiation. Here's what it means. That when Jesus was hanging on the cross by three nails, his legs were crossed over, and he's hanging there like this and he can't breathe. I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus didn't die from pain. Jesus didn't die from the blood or from the nails. Jesus died from suffocating. I don't know if you've ever seen this. But so you hang on the cross. And when you're in this position, your lungs are, are collapsing that you can't breathe. So guess what? You have to push up to breathe. You get to this point. <sighs> well, guess what he's pushing up on? A nail, that it, one huge nail that is in between, that is going through both legs. That would hurt. And so he pushes up to breathe, but he's exhausted. So he, he falls back down like this and he's hanging up here. And eventually he's to give out and he dies. Well, the Bible says that when God looked down on Christ and His holiness, His obedience, His righteousness, His, His, His de deity, that He is perfect in every sense. He is fully God. When God saw that, He was pleased with Jesus. And then God took our sins, all of them, all of them, no distinction between any of the sins, God took them and placed them on Jesus. And when God put those sins on Jesus, listen, God didn't just say, Okay, I'll take my eraser and wipe them away. He didn't. God looked down on His Son. The Bible says it was the will of God to crush Him. God turned His back on His Son. And God killed Jesus on the cross. God poured out His wrath on Jesus and said, I hate sins. The wages of sin is death. And He killed Jesus. And propitiation means that the sins were washed away. And propitiation means God punished Him on the cross and killed Him. It was God's will to do that. Why? Because sin is awful and sin deserves that and sin is wrong against God and it will be dealt with. And he did that. God, look at Romans 3. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Look what it says next. To be received by faith. And so us, we stand here looking at that work of Christ. That one weekend, as I read at the beginning in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, in which the God-man Jesus died on the cross. And the Bible says that if you believe that, you will be made righteous. And the Bible says that if you do not believe that, you will remain in your sins unrighteous. Verse 25 goes on to say, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Listen to me, folks. You have sinned in the past, just like I have, and God didn't do anything about it. Is that not a good thought or what? You have sinned in the past and God didn't do anything about it. That's how He is. He's slow to anger. 
He is abounding in mercy. He is rich in love. He is gracious. And when you sin against Him, He doesn't come and kill you. He doesn't come and beat you up. He doesn't come and give you a spanking. He doesn't come and say, I'm done with you. He passed over your past sins. And He killed Jesus for them. Verse 26 says, that was to show His righteousness at the present time. So that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you will put your faith in Christ, God is right to call you 100% clean. Because the punishment for your sins happened then on Jesus. If you do not want to commit yourself to Christ, God is not right to make you right. So He doesn't. But so He is just to punish you at the judgment. R.C. Sproul says that Christ's righteousness is now legally considered to be the possession of the sinner. I'm telling you that what I believed then at age 12, that I still believe today, is that I have the perfect, the perfect righteousness of Jesus as mine. And God loves me as much as He could love anything in the world. Totally not because of anything in Josh Green, but totally because of everything that is in Jesus. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing that you or Satan or anybody else can change about that. Tonight I will preach from Ephesians 6 on the spiritual armor of God, in the spiritual warfare. And my subject tonight is the shield of faith. In other words, my faith is a shield I've got about me. It's one of those big old-timey shields that protects the whole body. And you can throw anything you want to throw. You can spit as many verbal darts and accusations against me. You can point out every sin that I've ever done. You can come up with everything in the world negative against me. But there's a shield about me that is what? Faith in Christ. No matter what I've done as sin... It doesn't change the fact that Jesus died for them. I believe that. And the Bible says, I'm righteous. Because I believe it. I want to ask you here today if you've believed. Have you committed yourself to getting your righteousness from Him instead of trying to be it? Would you admit here today that you just can't live up to it? And so you want to ask Him to give you His as a gracious gift? Would you today come forward and say, I want to be a Christian saved of my sins? One commentator says, a living and dying and living God? A God who stands over against us with wrath and who loves us anyway? A cross where punishment is meted out by God and borne by God? 
This sounds scandalous. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is scandalous. Listen, it kills our pride. It devastates our sense of spiritual self-sufficiency. But it offers us the greatest hope we could ever ask for. I want to ask you today, if you'd like to be saved and get the righteousness of God as you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask now that this Word of God would rest on our souls. That this Romans 3 would be very clear to us. And that You, God, would save us. God, I ask right now that if there are people here who have never decided to be saved, that You would do that. God, give them belief. Draw them to Yourself. Father, we ask now that You would do a great work in our hearts and lives that we would know the redemptive work of Christ as the central part, as the most important thing, and that we would grasp onto it. That we would know that every sin we've ever done, Jesus took care of. And by faith, we are right with Him. And there's nothing that can separate us from Your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.